Shop Talk Live, episode number 213, this time with 100% more Vic Teslin. That's right, Vic joins Mike and me, and we discuss making wooden hand planes. Any telltale signs of bad boards in the lumberyard? Whether you really should shoot your miters or just take them off the saw? And what one listener should do with a plethora of number fours? First, I want to let you guys know about some fun stuff that we've been doing on the website in this isolation period. I know some of you are stuck home with kids, wondering what to do, little kids, older kids, whatever. Head on over to findwoodworking.com kids, and we have assembled a collection of posts and projects and all sorts of things that you could do with your little ones out in the wood shop to get a little bit of shop time and to get them off the ipad for a minute so my son and i did a live stream going over a bunch of projects it was really fun and then we've also been posting lots of other projects that you can do with your kids so head on over to findwoodworking.com kids and get in the shop with your little ones all right here is vic mike and myself after a brief word from one of our sponsors For more than 90 years, Woodcraft has been supplying woodworkers with quality tools, supplies, and advice. For the best in hand tools, power tools, and shop essentials, you can count on Woodcraft from start to finish. Check them out for woodworking classes, free demos, and project advice from knowledgeable, friendly staff. With 75 stores nationwide, you can find a store in your neighborhood or shop woodcraft.com for your favorite woodworking brands. Woodcraft, helping you make wood work since 1928. So I'm here with, uh, remotely with Mike Pekovich. Hey. Vic Teslin. Hey, how's it going? How, and, and Jeff Rose, of course. Hello. Right on, Jeff, thank you for all of the hard work you've been putting into making all of this happen behind the scenes and keeping us rolling. Well, hey, you're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I didn't send this out earlier because I want to surprise you with it. Uh, so we have a prelude question from John. When Mike or other well-known woodworkers, such as Bob Van Dyke, walk into a woodworking store, are they treated like celebrities? And we have Vic on, so yeah, come on. this really needs to be uh, addressed to Vic. <laughs> I know for me, running into Mike, Bob, or perhaps Christian Bexford on a on a Saturday at my favorite woodworking store would be like running into Tiger Woods at a golf shop. Surely, others who read fine woodworking and have become acquainted with these experts by watching the project videos have similar reactions, right? So I've been in a woodcraft with Bob, and it doesn't happen because his school is next to a woodcraft. So there's definitely no aura about Bob being in a woodcraft. <laughs> well, there is an aura around Bob. It's just not one conducive to people going up and talking to him. <laughs> Do you guys? Do you guys ever get looks in woodworking? Vic, you ever been like recognized in public? I a, a few times, yeah. yeah, and then uh, and then once I pay them the money I owe them, <laughs> um, everything's okay. But um, yeah, you get that a little bit, but um, it it's yeah, it's still very disconcerting when somebody kind of calls out your name and you don't know who they yes. are. Because you immediately start to think, "Oh my goodness, should I know this person?" And you know, do I owe them yes. money? <laughs> do I owe them money or anything, you know? So yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's always a little bit, um, I still find it very disconcerting and I certainly don't consider, um, myself 
a celebrity because I mean that's not what I. I'm just a woodworker man. <laughs> <laughs> I I remember being starstruck when the first time I saw you at Vic at um, it was at Woodworking in America in 2015 maybe in Kansas. Oh, okay. And you were walking down the hall, and I was like, "Oh my god! Look at the size of them!" <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you were you, you were wearing um the the oh yeah the spent, uh, Georgia uh, <laughs> or, or Don Williams made for me yeah Don yeah. Williams. yeah and I was like, "Oh, you got those from Don?" And you're like, "Yeah, cool, isn't it?" I was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> That's awesome. I I um. Uh, I yeah, I find the whole thing kind of weird. Yeah, I find it weird. Uh, it's um, <laughs> anyway, it's just not something that I'm I look for or I'm interested in or anything like that. It's just you know I do what I do because I really enjoy it, and and if I can kind of put any information out there that you know might help somebody or save somebody from screwing something up that I've screwed up a hundred times before, um, then I do it. But it but yeah, it's uh. I mean, it's a nice feeling. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I still have an ego, uh, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a little strange. What about you, Mike? You must yeah. get recognized a lot more because you teach a lot more than um, I do. Not really. Probably like the the one story that comes to mind is uh, Ben. This is maybe before he came to the magazine. A bunch of us were eating at Panera down the street. No, that was my oh, first day <laughs> there. <laughs> Three or four of us were at a table eating and a woman comes up and says something like, do you guys work at fine woodworking? And we said, yeah. And she points to her table and her husband sitting there sheepishly and says, my husband really likes you guys. (laughs) 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 So I think he ended up coming over and and we said hi and everything. And and I don't know, Ben. So how many years ago was that? Because I think that's, that's about it. Yeah. yeah so i i thought oh this is this is like i'm having lunch with famous people every day but it was like that was my first day so it was like this is the way this is my life now you know it's interesting i went to a guitar making conference with linda manzer and if you don't if you don't know who linda manzer is just google her and you'll see some pretty incredible work she's probably one of the best in the world uh guitar maker and uh, i went to a conference with her and uh, I was just going to kind of check it out, and she's a good friend of mine. So uh, I went to um, I went to this conference, and I'm walking through these rooms, and the room like quiets, and then you hear people whispering, "Oh my God, it's Linda Manzer! It's Linda Manzer!" And I'm like, "Holy <laughs> cow, Linda, you're a rock star!" And she's like, "Only here, Vic." <laughs> so it's just funny. She's pretty meek about it, but yeah, like she just everybody just stopped talking. It was like Leopold. Leopold, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's answer some okay. woodworking questions. <laughs> All right. Question number one is from Connor. I recently bought a hardware kit to build a wooden plane. I'm wondering what angle I should set the blade at for minimal tear out and ease of push. Mm, that's interesting. So that's, there's no answer to that question. <laughs> it's, it's when you've got that, two-part question yeah i mean you know the the japanese have taught us that the lower the angle you can get away with the better when you're Um, plating cedar yeah exactly um but i mean in in general purpose like if you can get away with a 45 degree blade uh you know cutting angle on a piece of cherry then of course do that Uh um i don't 
you know, I, in my other life, I did a lot of like kind of work looking at different angles and how they affect things. And, um, I think a, a sharp, a truly sharp blade, not just a sharp blade, but a truly sharp blade and a tight mouth opening takes you a lot further than a blade angle does. I agree. Now that's just, yeah. that's just, that's my opinion. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, 45 degrees wow. is kind of the standard that, you know, has been, you know, thanks to Stanley, you know, everybody uses a 45 degree blade. Right. Um, you know, you could bump that up to 50 if you were concerned, you know, sometimes in like a wood, like cherry or whatever, if you get a little bit of that sort of fleck, you could end up getting a little bit of tear out and the 50 is not yeah. going to give you any hassle in pushing. Right. Uh, 55, you're going to start to feel it a little bit more. Uh, and then, um, you know, but I always, because I use a sort of bevel up system, I always try to go with as low a blade presentation as I can to start because every piece okay. of cherry is different. And yeah. like, so like if I can put a 25 degree blade in a bevel up plane and, you know, try it at, you know, whatever that works out to be 37 degrees. Mm-hmm. That was fast math, eh? That was um, good. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> 25 plus 12 is well, that's tough, right. yeah. yeah it's that's like it's like metric that way see you just add the whole numbers <laughs> i thought i'd sneak that in um but anyway um so if i can get away with 37 degrees on a piece of cherry i'm doing it yeah right but if i start to see a little bit of tear out or a little bit of whatever then i'll just switch to a higher angle blade and then go for it but on a wooden plane i mean they're wooden planes so they're pretty cheap right the hardware kit is is really quite inexpensive, and a chunk of wood is inexpensive. Right. Um, so make two or three of them. You yeah. Know, and have one set up at forty, one at fifty, one at you could even do one at sixty for sure. you know extremely cantankerous woods. Right. Yeah. Did Did you ever make a hand plane in your Cronovian days, Mike? Yeah, I've made a couple. Um, I have just the regular, you know, like the flat body, the the traditional Cronop blade. I'm sure that's bedded at 45 degrees, but I remember when I was yeah, making yeah. them, it seemed that a lot of people tended to bed them a little bit higher. Um, and a lot of the English infill planes were bedded higher, like the York pitch, I believe is like a 50 degree bed angle. So that was kind of traditional for hardwoods and stuff. Um, I have a, uh, a Lee Nielsen four and a half that I put a 55 degree frog in hoping I could get better results on quarters on oak, which can be really prone to tear out. Um, it didn't work that well, so I put like a 10-degree back bevel on that. So that's basically a 65-and-a-half-degree presentation. And with the blade super wide, it's really hard to push, so I never use it. <laughs> and when you do, it makes this kind of horrible scraping feeling. It feels like it's nothing but tear out, but the surface is super, super smooth. Um, but you almost bruise the palm. I do kind of bruise the palm of my hand if I'm using that too much. So I don't use it, but in a rare occasion it works well, but the bottom line is, you know, just pull out a scraper because I mean, that's like, you know, 90 degree presentation, you're getting zero tear out. So for me, while a higher angle can't help, I typically go from, if my regular 45 degree plane doesn't work, I usually jump straight to a scraper and then, you know, bite the bullet and do a little bit more sanding that way. But, um, but if, like Vic said, if you're making a, a wooden hand plane, make a few of them because I think it's sort of like ukuleles. Like 
you know, if you make five, that fifth one is probably going to be better than the first one. So you may as well go right. for it. So. Because <laughs> if you're dumb enough to do one, yeah. you might as well do a bunch. I actually have two ukuleles, but or no, three of them, but I've not built any of them myself. Oh. So that's the next step. Oh, there it is. Nice, nice. It just comes <laughs> flying out. This is, this is the joy of working by yourself, home alone now. You can just play a ukulele Absolutely. whenever you want. Oh. Um, have, so have you ever made a bevel up wooden hand? So handle? I've tried. Mm. Um, it's difficult. Um when you consider how thin the material is at the bottom, uh, like by the mouth, um, yeah, okay. it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to do. So I, I've, I've been making a lot of different planes lately, um, as a lot of people will soon see. Um, but the, yeah, <laughs> coming to your neck. Um, anyway, um, and I was promised a cover, by the way. Um, so you got it. I'm we'll, hoping that that happens. We'll make one for you. You'll get yeah. it. I mean, we send the magazines yeah, out to the cover. <laughs> 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 um, but anyway, so, um, you know, those planes are a little bit lower angle. Uh, but to try to get down to, the, like, the requisite 12-degree uh, bedding angle, I think you'd be – You'd be hard pressed. I've tried it a few times with different okay. woods, and then I thought, oh, I wonder if you could do it with Baltic birch, um, you know, just to kind of have the integrity of the of that. But I, and then maybe put a, a skin of um, hardwood on the bottom sole, and I thought, oh, I don't know, I don't think it's worth it to be honest. What about just um, taking like a big heavy iron, like from a bevel up plane, and just throwing that in a uh, wooden plane with a 45 degree bed. So you've got that kicked up to like 65 degrees right off the bat. So then you're at a super high angle. Yeah. That's what, um, um, Oh, his name just flew out of my head. Uh, the fellow that makes the planes in Australia, um, H and T H and T Gordon. Yeah. Um, basically his planes are designed to be beveled down, but then if you get into some cantankerous grain, you can flip the blade over. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, you, now you lose your mouth opening, oh, right. but then the mouth opening becomes less of an issue because you're scraping right. now. So I don't know exactly. I own a couple of his planes, but to be honest, I can't tell you what the angles are, whether it's a 45 bed, but it's basically like you're saying, Mike, he, he makes it so that you just flip the blade over okay. and then you've got uh, a scraping okay. tool. So, huh. and it works so well. So there's no chip breaker to have to contend with on something like that. No, okay. no, his, he just uses a single iron on all of on most of his planes that I know of. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, okay, so Connor, I didn't send this to you either, but when I was assembling the script, I thought there was a second part to his question. And I thought we could quickly answer it. <clears throat> I also have a question regarding French polishing. Mm. When I store the rubbers in air in an airtight jar, the base of the rubber that comes into contact with the wood has started to become moldy. Am I doing something wrong or is this normal? I've never had this. Mike? Yeah, you might be doing something wrong, but if you are, I'm doing the same thing. Um, I, I thought my problem was that I kept all of my shellac rags in an old pickle jar, and I thought maybe I didn't clean it up enough and everything turned black because of that um because bob van dyke he does the same thing and all of his little shellac rags are in this little jar and everything is super pristine and right so i think like the big difference between bob and i is i work with a lot of white oak and my thought is it's possible that the tannins in the oak 
are reacting to maybe the water content in the shellac because you know there's no such thing as uh, alcohol which doesn't have a water content i think there's is more of a chemical reaction to the tannins making those spots as it is like a true mold hmm. that's what i'm going to say that's interesting so mine yeah. i looked at my little shellac rag i have a hard time calling it a rubber let alone what George Frank used to call it back in, in the eighties. Um, they they could have some weird names for French Carlson. Yeah, um, do. I don't have any mold on mine, and it's been going for three months. Yeah. Um, but that was all on spruce and cherry, so low tannin content woods. So maybe yeah. Like so Connor, if you're working a lot with oak, I'm going to say that's probably the problem. Hmm. Yeah, I've never had the mold problem either. In fact, yeah. uh, I, I've had a, a a rubber in the uh, in the jar for for a number of months, and it's not not a problem. There you go. Cool. All right. Question number two is from Dennis. Do you have any tips for the lumberyard to help single out troubled boards? Quarter sawn white oak is not cheap to just throw away, and our winters in Southern California are not cold enough to burn fourteen board foot. So. <laughs> He 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 had a whole bunch of he's 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 building I believe your tool cabinet, um, Mike, mm-hmm. and he had a bunch of wood go wonky on him basically. Uh, um, I don't have much to offer him because normally you are there with me <laughs> at the lumber yard. <laughs> so, um, so that's what you need. You need to get need Mike Vukovich to come. Yeah, you need to have him come to your lumber yard and pick your wood out with you. Yeah. Yeah. Vic, what are you looking for? I think the answer is probably going to be pretty consistent. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to just, and it's almost hard to perceive, but I mean, it, it comes from, you know, picking out a lot of boards and, 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 you know, seeing what's going to cause problems, but you can actually see if a board is going to cause you, um, any grief, like if it has any weird sort of wows in them or, or whatever. Um, I don't often, well, I mean, any, anywhere that I shop for wood, they don't care if I pick apart the pile as long as I put it back. But, right. um, so, I mean, I'm just looking for the straightest grain, especially in the case of like a quarter sawn white oak. Yeah. Um, I don't want it running out. I don't want the grain making any like funny jogs along the lines because as soon as you see that, you know that that's stress that the tree uh, kind of grew under. And as soon as you like, if it's a piece of eight quarter and you bust that open for a couple of one inch pieces, um, you know it's going to go, it's going to go crazy on you. Yeah. Um, the other thing actually has less to do with picking and more to do with handling. And I think that. Um, you know, if depending on the lumber yard, you know, different moisture contents, different lumber yards are going to have things, whether it's stored inside or outside. Um, if you take something that was stored outside, bring it into your shop, crack it open, uh, like right then and there, I mean, you're just begging yeah. for it. You're begging for problems. Um, so, you know, the whole um, acclimating the wood to the to the to your shop environment and, and bringing it in there slowly, you know, depending on how things go. I mean, a moisture meter is a great thing to have. Um, I mean, they could be a little bit dear if you get the ones that don't have the pins on them, you know, the sort of, um, the ones that use magic. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I don't understand how it works. So that's magic. I'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, but I, you know, I, I think that's what it is. I mean, I, I don't know. What do you think about Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I think grain is everything. And you're right. If you find a little potato chip board, if it's already 
wonky, you're never going to get that flat because as you try to flatten it, it's just going to keep on moving. Um, and then it, it's mm-hmm. it's grain, like you said, the grain in relation to the edges of the board because um, if you're cutting a straight board out of a crooked tree in that grain, there's a lot of runout. Um, it's it's going to be a mess when you start to mill that. So super straight grain. Um, on plain sawn boards where you have the cathedrals on the face, um, if you have a really pronounced cathedral, it means the grain is running at a pretty strong uh, angle in relation to the face of the board. So don't pull anything with really heavy cathedrals. What I'm looking for, like the ideal plain sawn board, is where the grain is pretty straight on the edges, and but also down that center strip. Uh, where it's super planes on is if it's fairly straight or you see these little circles or islands going down, that means that grain is really, really parallel Mm. to that surface. Um, That's a really good indicator that that was a straight board cut out of a straight tree and that's going to behave pretty well for you. And like Vic said, if you're, if you're ripping down thick stock, eight quarter stock into thinner boards and it's been commercially kiln dried, you're going to have to anticipate there's going to be some movement when you do that and just, you know, account for a lot more material loss than you think you might have. Um, you cannot rip a two inch wide board in half and get two one inch wide pieces. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you're actually lucky if you can get two, you know, full three quarter inch boards. So, uh, out of two inch. Yeah. Um, you know, just if, you know, if you really account for a lot of loss, then things are going to end up pretty straight. And if you're really trying to sneak as much yield as you can, it's going to bite you. It's going to go crooked and you're going to lose a lot more wood trying to increase the yield than just being a little bit more conservative with it. So yeah. um, You know, are there any species that you worry about more than others? Like I, a long time ago I was doing something and I wanted really, really pale wood. And I found a piece of, in the poplar pile, it was a piece of like pure sapwood that was just white as can be. And I grabbed it. And I mean, I've never had anything move as much as this board did. It was, it was a haunted board. (laughs) Um, so I always like when I'm looking at poplar now, I, I keep sapwood away from it, you know, but is, are there any things that you're hesitant to buy because of movement? You know, I don't, I don't avoid anything personally. I think that, um, some woods are more prone to movement. Like, uh, I find, um, um, sugar maple, acer saccharin, I find, uh, it can, it can be a little bit unpredictable. Um, but again, I think it has more to, like Mike was suggesting, it has more to do with paying attention to the grain and what it's doing. Um, but I, I don't know. Do you have any species, Mike, that you um, avoid? Ben, you mentioned poplar and it's super cheap and I've had, you know, those boards really turn into bananas really quick. So I did some, I did a kitchen where I did poplar door frames and they tended up not staying all that flat. So I would, you know, on something like that, I would go with like a soft maple. I think that can be more stable. Um, also it has to do with how the, the lumber is dried. Um, like white oak, I think can be really reactive when you're sawing it because I think it's one of those woods that you really should draw dry for a really long time and dry it slowly, but I think they fast track it and it really creates a lot of internal tensions. Um, Mm. I was working with some air dried walnut, which was like 
you know, 12 quarter stock and I was ripping eighth inch, like basically veneers off of that for some internal dividers. And it was just dead flat. And you could just feel when it fell off, you know, that little thing that veneer fell off the side at the bandsaw, it just, just fell over. There's no tension. Um, but if you're trying to, yeah, if you're resawing a quarter Oak, you're probably over two feet and you're cutting a half inch wide board, you can get anywhere from an eight to a quarter inch cup there. And if you're trying to flatten that out, you're ending up with, with not a lot of stock left. So, um, so that, that's a really good point. Do, do as many short resaws as possible. Yeah. I I think the rule of thumb is always when you're milling stock is always break it down as small as you can before you do any final milling to it. Like, you know, if you're getting door, uh, frames, two inch wide door frames, you don't want to mill up a 10 inch wide board flat and square, and then trying to rip your door frames out of it. It never works. Yeah. I mean, just <laughs> cut them, you know, two and a quarter, two and a half inch wide off of the rough stock and mill down each length of frame, um, as much as you can. And if you can get by leaving it longer before cutting it into shorter lengths, that's okay. Um, uh, but if you do want to get rid of a lot of, you know, cup along the length, if you can cut those parts down, it's, you know, maybe leave them an inch, inch over length before you start flattening and reduce as much of the cup as you can, you're going to save more lumber that way. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about our all time favorite techniques of all time for this week. Who wants to, anybody want to volunteer to go first? Go for it, Vic. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I completely forgot. So, I got to think of something real quick. I can go. I can go. <laughs> okay, Ben, you you go ahead. Okay. Um, and nobody pay attention to me, so you're thinking about your own techniques. Um, I'm good. I thought of one, so I'm going to go ahead. And <laughs> <laughs> Vic has leaned back, and <laughs> um, okay. So mine is to. It's really really simple, and I'm pretty sure I've done it before, but it's worth repeating. Always store your wooden hand screws in the same position. Uh, so I keep mine the top handle on the left. So every time I grab a wooden hand screw, the orientation of the hand screw is always the same, and I can operate it without having to think. It gives me a consistency. Otherwise, trying to operate wooden hand screws without this one method of consistency is infuriating for me. Oh. That's interesting. I usually just end up turning it yeah. the wrong way three times. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like a USB, right? You, it's like yeah. that's exactly what it's yeah. like. <laughs> it's a quantum theory thing where you know wrong the first time, wrong the second time, right the third time. It's the only way that works. Yeah. <laughs> That's really actually kind of cool that you've come up with a solution to no, that, though, Ben. I think. Like, <laughs> oh, well, whatever. You could have yeah. taken. He doesn't listen to this. I'm the same way. You pick it up, you turn it wrong way, turn it the other way, good. And, like, even if I try to anticipate, okay, I would normally do it this way. That's wrong. I'm going to do it this way. This will be right, wrong way, do it the other way. So right. I just, it's one of those things I will not, I will not even try to guess what's right. I will just pick away and it'll be wrong and that's okay. And just go to it. So Ben, so you got these oriented. So the, tell me how this works for you. Um, okay. So there's two handles, one uh, a top handle and a bottom yes. handle, we'll call it. I always right. hold, and it doesn't matter which, which one you do, as long as you're consistent, I always hold the top handle in my left hand. 
So, so when the I spin handle it, nearest going nearest you. If they're oriented standing up, I'm yeah. I'm looking at it standing up. The top okay. handle or the handle furthest away from me is in my left hand. Okay. Right. So when you spin it like a bicycle going yeah. forward, yeah. it tightens. When okay. you pedal backwards, it loosens. Okay. And it's always and so when I put them on my rack, they're always in the same orientation, left side hmm. to, or top one on the left. And I pick it up, I go. And the, the best part of it is when when you don't have to think about how to use a wooden hand screw, you use them a lot more often as opposed to yeah. just when you need to use a wooden hand screw. Um, I was doing, do you zero them out every time you put them back? Um, so right now the way I have them stored is I have a, you mean so that they're parallel? Well, zero and, and closed. Oh, okay. They're not closed. Okay. Um, I, I okay. have them mounted right now. There's a, there's a piece of, three quarter inch plywood mounted vertically to my shop wall. So the bottom one of each size has to clamp onto that plywood. Uh, Those okay. are the only ones that I have to think about. Um, right. But I have a wooden hand screw buying problem. So I don't get to the bottom <laughs> very often. So huh. Awesome. All right. Cool. So I bought Vic? you enough time. Yeah. Who, who's Vic? Uh, technique uh, it's sort of a technique and a tool all at once that's fine um i really have now that i've been i've been making a lot of planes lately and i've really enjoyed using a float um to f- keep surfaces flat um and and uh be able to remove material very judiciously um and so i think I've, I, it started to creep into mortise and tenon work, um, where instead of using a hand plane, let's say, um, to, you know, whichever one you would use, sometimes a shoulder plane, sometimes a, a rabbit block plane. Um, but I've been grabbing a float and then just taking a, a, a pairing cut off with the float. Um, and it, I find it remarkably easy to keep the surface nice and flat. Uh, and you're removing a very, very small amount of material with that float. Um, Explain what a float is, because this isn't a tool a lot of people have experience with. Yeah, so a float is basically just, it looks like a file, um, generally fairly thick, and then um, it just has a series of cuts um, in in the material, basically making, you know, full-width uh, knives that go across the you know, the, the, the width of the tool. Um, and it just, it, it removes wood, um, and it does it r- really well. Uh, and of course the float has to be sharp. Um, and there's, there's ways to make sure that that happens. And the first way is to buy a good one, um, because you don't want to be messing around with it. Um, but yeah, they just, um, and they make them in different, um, different sort of setups. So once some floats have a, f- uh, the face is cutting, but the edges are safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, the edges are cutting and the faces are safe. Hmm. Uh, there's different shapes. There's different. So for plane making, um, you know, some of them are sort of diamond shaped at the end and others are, um, you know, up on their edge. Um, they're just, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different, some are offset. Some of them have like, a you know, kind of a dog leg in them. Um, but I just, that, so the technique portion of that is really just being able to judiciously remove material, um, you know, and not 
you know, not using a hand plane. Uh, I don't know that it's easier or better or anything. I just, I'm, I've been using them a lot and I've been finding that I'm grabbing them uh, more often than not. That's cool. Cool. What, um, what brand floats do you have? Cause historically they've been hard to come by, but I think people are starting to manufacture them again now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the ones that I have, I think they're made in Japan. Oh, okay. Um, and so uh, like, but not like, from a guy up in a cave somewhere and they're $6,000 each. Um, they're like, um, they're, they're mass produced. Yeah. Um, they, they look an awful lot. Like, does anybody remember the Nicholson shear cut files? You know, like they were, they were just a flat file and they had a very similar pattern that these Japanese ones have. Okay. Um, and they come in a plane set, like for making planes, and then a regular set, and then they also have a half round where oh, cool. um, the round is, is, yeah. So, and it's they they cut; they're extremely sharp, um, and they um, leave an incredible surface behind as well. So, okay. for shape for shaping tasks as well, um, when, I find that yep. when when would you grab for a flow over a file or a rasp? Well, it, if we're talking about shaping, mm-hmm. um, you know, the um, I find rasps are pretty crude um, tools. They, re- you know, they can remove a lot of material quickly. Although a lot of times people don't buy them with a heavy enough cut. Um, but I find that these these uh, floats can be really aggressive if you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Whereas, or you can kind of just very lightly um, use them, and they can do. Um, nice work i find the nice thing about the float is that because it's more like a series of chisel cuts versus like you know kind of tearing the wood um you get a much nicer surface out of them Hmm. um so if you don't want to have to do a whole bunch of subsequent you know going to the second file and then going to the going to sandpaper if you want to try to get it right off of a tool um then floats can be pretty handy really cool so that was more of an all-time favorite tool, I, no, not no, technique. That's, that's, but it, it was it, educational. It started oh, technique and then went into tool because we didn't know what the heck you were talking about. That's all. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. So, yeah, it's just one of those things that's kind of affected the way I've been working lately. And um, and it just, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, like I said, I don't think it's better or worse or, or anything else. You know, I'm sure, you know, you could get into all kinds of crazy arguments about, you know, well, how do you keep the surface flat and all yeah. that other stuff? And I don't know. I just, I just do. Woodworkers I, never do. I don't know how I, what's that get on to? Crazy arguments about esoteric things. Oh, don't even get me started. I just got a new, <laughs> I just got a new set of Japanese chisels, uh-huh. like a good set of Japanese uh-huh. chisels. And somebody recommended I go on to a, a Facebook group. Uh, to figure out how to set the hoops properly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what uh, what uh, chisels did you get? Do you know the uh, maker? Uh, oh, Ouchi. Okay. There are these ones here. Oh, nice. First thing is get that get that yeah, sticker so- off of there, man. <laughs> oh no, I, no, I love that. Just soak all that lacquer off of there and get the sticker off. Oh, oh yeah, no, I'm gonna be go. I'm gonna be scraping yeah. the wood and and there's lacquer on yes. the metal as well, so I'm gonna get all yeah. that off. But I can't believe but the that biggest, they let the, you in that group because you have a Tormac. Oh well, I said that too. <laughs> well, after I got 40 responses of of information I actually wasn't looking for, um, 
I said, well, thanks so much for all of your comments. Uh, you know, like anything in woodworking, um, you know, you don't have to ask for an opinion yeah. to get one. <laughs> and I said, just wait till you guys find out that I sharpen with a Tormac yeah. and then left it at that. I was going to say, my advice, <laughs> step one, uh, sharpen with a hollow grind on a Tormac. Step two, use a honing guide to put your final bevel on there. Yeah, yeah. And they will go nuts. It's awesome. Oh, no. It's going to be fantastic. I'm actually going to shoot a video. Um on doing it and then watch yeah. them watch their heads come apart. But the biggest issue yeah. that they had was whether or not um, I should hammer the handle to reduce its size. No. To put the hoop on versus no. using a hand plane to reduce the size to get the hoop set. So I use, I use this scraper is usually enough. Yeah. And I don't like to pre-compress it. You just want to get rid of any any ridge on there that keeps the hoop from fully seating. Right. And then I just I just get a like a socket wrench thing, just a little they bit. Sent, they sent me one of these. What is that? That's oh, a, okay. it's a hoop right. setter. A hoop setter. So you can set your right hoop size. with that. Yeah. 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 I don't know which part you use to set your hoop. But um should, should be the hollow part, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Right in there. So, so it anyway, should be wide enough to get around the handle, but it should contact that hoop and just knock it on down there. So you got it. Make sure you you epoxy that in place. This is officially the too. point where we've gone. Yeah, too I far. think we, yeah we've got. This is one of those situations <laughs> where this is turned into a forum post. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, we did a, we did an article with John Reed Fox on kind of choosing and setting up Japanese chisels. That's my go-to information right there. How long ago? Um, two or three years ago. Okay, I'll go find it. Yeah, go find that. It's super good. I'll post a link. Oh, there chat. you go. Hey. There you go. <laughs> All right. Sorry uh, to Mike, that. what you got? Yeah. No. Um, Have you come kind up? Kind of a twofold thing, but they both kind of spawn from the same situation. Um, basically, the, the overall technique is um, measuring what, is, what Steve Vlada calls it, like measuring in the field. Basically, uh, for certain dimensions, you can take them off a of plan. Beyond that, other dimensions, you need to take them off of the assembled piece as you're working on it. Um, so in this case, I'm doing a little, uh, it's like a case on stand. I'm working on the stand. Um, so there's side rails that butt into the legs, which is simple enough. But then there are kind of supports that run front to back, but those butt into the front and back rails. So at a different shoulder to shoulder dimension than the side rails, which are leg to leg. And if you were trying to do that by math um, and try to hit those, you'll never get them. So it's a notion of um, you do the side rails first, butt into the legs, dry fit everything. And then I just measure uh, rail to rail to get that shoulder-to-shoulder uh, -shoulder dimension for my supports that run front to back. So um, that's kind of the first half, and that's a really awesome uh, basic tip. But then while I had this thing dry fit, in terms of locating uh, those case supports, um, they're attached to the front and back with uh, through double tenons. So basically where they attach and the distance between those tenons and the size of those tenons, that becomes a really prominent graphic element on the front rail of that piece. So while I had a dry fit before I, I uh, figured out where they were going, I just cut little rectangles of wood to approximate 
the size of the tenon sticking through the leg and trim them at about a sixteenth of an inch thick, which is the amount that they're going to protrude. And I just put double stick tape on the back of those and I could just put those on that front rail, just like I would like, a, you know, mocking up drawer pull locations or something like that. So I was able to get sort of like the side to side dimensions of these by where those tenons were going to go. And then also the space between the tenons. Cause if you've ever done double tenons on a rail, it looks wonky if they're too far apart and too close to the edges. And if they're too close to the center, that looks really wonky too. Like, you know, right away exactly what that's going to be. Um, so it was just using these little uh, faux tenon stickers on the front of the rail to dial in, um, which seems like a really important structural component, which it is, but because it manifests itself in such a graphic way in the piece, it, became almost as much of a visual concern as like a structural concern. Cause you know, within a few inch range, it doesn't matter where those supports are. They're going to support the case just fine. And the double tenons, you know, again, they could be off, but still be really strong, but just to kind of, it's that notion of um, kind of combining the, the consideration for structural elements in a piece, as well as how they manifest themselves as visual elements in the piece. So stickers, that's it. I'm going to write that, that down as peeling stick, stick tenons. tenons. Yes. You know what, Mike? That's really interesting because um, I, I did a table a number of years ago that had a, a through tenon as well through an apron and a floating top and all yeah. that other fun stuff. Um, but the the thing I found, the tendency for people, I think, is to simply try to draw it on paper and see how it looks. Right. Um, and and I think that that's where, um, you know, your your comment about doing it in place in situ is important because it may look okay on paper, but then when you're standing at the height that you are exactly. with the piece standing at the height that it is, it's like putting a pull on a drawer. It never goes in the center, does it? No, you got to kick that right? up a little bit. Yeah. You got to kick it up a bit or else it's going to look wrong. And so this is even more important because like you said, that is a huge visual impact. And if you get it wrong, you will, that's all you will ever see <laughs> forever and all forever. And you, <laughs> and you point exactly out to point out to everybody, it. um, because nobody, I mean, who's going to tell Mike Pekovich, he screwed it up. Uh, you'd be surprised. Yes. <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a really good, that's a really good technique is to, is like, I've done it before with tape, um, yeah. just to kind of locate things, but man, that, I'm totally using that because not only do you get to see the projection or sorry, the location, but you also see the projection. Absolutely. And what you were saying about only getting a certain information working from a front view. Cause the other thing I was looking at is that on the sides, I have the tenons through tenons, you know, sticking out on the sides of the legs too. So being able to look at that as from a three quarter view and you see the placement and size of those tenons on the front rail in relation to the tenons on the legs. Yeah. It gives you a much better understanding of, of what it's going to look like once you do it. And, and for me, that's a key to design is give yourself a chance to see it before you actually start to cut mortises and tenons and drill the wood. Cause half of it is, yeah. Cutting a mortise and tenon. Well, the other half is, getting it in the right place and um, mm. it's a tough combination yeah. i'm still working on it cool right on all right so we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor 10 bucks a month 10 bucks a month is all it takes to get a subscription to the magazine full access to the website 
including all of our video workshops, like Mike Pakovich's that's airing right now, and Chris Gochner's, and Matt Wada, and some epic, epic videos that go further in depth than anything you're going to find on YouTube. I truly believe the Fine Woodworking Unlimited membership is stone cold the best deal in online woodworking education. So get the subscription to the magazine, get it delivered to your door, and get access to the finest video series that you're going to find on the web. Also, you get access to the complete online archive, which is every issue of Fine Woodworking Magazine that's ever been published. All 281 of them at this point. So head on over to the website, click on members, and start your 14-day free trial. If you like it, it's $9.99 a month or $99.99 a year. I'll come right out and say it's 100 bucks. But it's the best $100 you'll ever spend towards becoming a better woodworker. All right, question number three <laughs> yeah. is from Bob. Oh, all right. In Shop Talk Live at number 81, Ed's favorite had to do with making a saw hook for cutting miters. His process had to do with coming up with a shooting board that would cut perfect angles. Matt said not to not worry about cutting the angles perfect, but to use a shooting board. In Shop Talk Live 204, an entirely different cast, advised not to shoot your miters, but to cut them at the correct angle. Am I missing something? Scandal. <laughs> so um, 204 was Tom, Mike, and Barry not involved. 81 yeah. was released in 2015. I was there too, though. Oh, uh, okay. Fine. So, um, the time no, it's all different situations. Um, what Matt Kenny was talking about was that if you have a saw hook to cut 45, who cares if you're off a degree because he's going to fine tune that 45 degree cut with a shooting board and a hand plane and really dial that in, um, which is great. And then he takes really good care. Like let's say he's making a box. Um, the important thing isn't the exact length of each side of the box. It's just that the opposite sides are exactly the same length to each other. So who cares if it's plus or minus three inches, as long as they're exactly the same length. So when he's shooting his miters, it's pretty easy to take a pair of pieces as you're shooting them and taking passes and, and sort of hold them up to each other to make sure that they're end to end you're right on. And then you just do it with the other pair. And then sort of, as long as those pairs are the same once you glue up the box it's going to be a rectangle or a perfect square not sort of a funky thing um so that's why that's a good thing what i was referring to is um, when you're cutting miters on a table saw like by, by machine method so i'm doing a picture frame or a box on the table saw and i have my stop set up in my angles and if those angles are off and you start to shoot those pieces and you start to change the length of those pieces as you're changing the angle and you're starting doing this in a random fashion you're having to keep track of the angles and the length of those parts and it just becomes something that you're chasing over and over, especially if you're trying to cut parts to an exact length. And as you start to correct those and they start to change your lengths, you could end up with something physically square, but not in the dimension you're talking to. Mm -hmm. So when I set up my miters on the table saw, um, I take great care to dial in the exact angle, cut four pieces, tape them together, make sure that, that my joints are really, really square, and then set all my stops so that I'm exact off of I don't know, 
think it's doing. Um, and then uh, make sure that it's, it's exact off the machine. So I'm getting parts exactly the same length to the exact angle I can. So um, it's a completely, they're two different concepts. And I think the problem is, um, for instance, I'm doing these uh, little teeny tiny boxes where the walls are only maybe three sixteenths of an inch thick. And I'm starting by cutting those ends just square at 90 degrees and shooting them square. And that works because I'm kind of doing it by hand. And like Matt does, I can check my dimensions off of each other and it works really well. It's like when you, when you kind of, you know, cross contaminate your processes from machine to hand work and get stuck in the middle. I think that's where you run into problems. So all of the advice that was given is all good, but you can take really good advice and combine it in such a way that you end up with a bad result. And that's sort of, that's what we're responsible for, for like 40 years of magazine making is we offer so many good options that can be yeah. combined in so many bad ways that, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's we're just, true. you know, we can't help but build misinformation into the information just by presenting different methodologies and philosophies to get to that same product. So yeah, sorry about that. They're all right, but yeah, they cannot work for you. Um, if you start to, the main thing is have an understanding of what you're after and how you're going about doing it. Um, and then that's going to lead towards processes that work for you as opposed to mixing and matching. Um, you take anything from sharpening to cutting joinery. Well, someone says to do this, someone says to do this. So I'm taking half of this and half of this. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, you can run into trouble there. Well, I think Mike, you hit it. Uh, you hit it on the head when you said that, um, you know, difference between hand yeah. and power tool. I mean, I'll, I use the shooting board technique if I'm cutting my miters with a, with a handsaw and I'll purposefully leave myself, you know, a 16th of an inch to be able to play with and finesse and get everything yeah. ready to go. But if I'm going to use, um, like I've got a little ink nice. table saw, um, you know, the one with the yeah. mortisering on it, uh, attachment on it. And until I buy it, right, exactly. Uh, I'm saving it for you, Ben. Um, but the, uh, but the nice thing about it is it's like super accurate and it's got like awesome stops built into it and all that other stuff. If I'm going to cut a miter using the table saw, well then I'm not going to go near that with a hand plane, um, because I'm going to let the saw do what the saw does. And that's create parts that are, you know, the right length, the right angle. And I will take, like you said, that fussy 10, 15 minutes to set it up so that it's perfect. Uh, and I don't want to have to touch it again. Um, but I mean, I, a lot of times I'll just, if I'm working at my bench and I got to cut a board to length, like, um, you know, using a referential measurement, I'll just put it on the saw hook, cut it, shoot it, and then it's done. I don't have to worry about it. But multiples, especially miters, like, I mean, I avoid miters at all costs because they, they are probably, in my <laughs> opinion, the fussiest joint that you can try to do. Yes. And it's, oh, yeah. and it's just a butt joint. I mean, yeah. you know, like everybody frets about cutting dovetails or, or mortise and tenon by hand. I would, I would take any of those in a heart, in a heartbeat before I would touch a miter. Yes. Um, so I just, um, my advice is don't cut miters. I agree. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so I, th I think that there's this, belief that you need to touch every surface with a hand plane to make it good enough eventually. Um, cause if you're going to, 
if you're going to rip a board to width, you're going to hit it with a hand plane before you edge glue it. Um, or right. If I can get good uh, surfaces off edges off my jointer, I'll glue it up. So. Okay. Uh, uh, but generally, people are talking about hitting it with a hand plane. I mean, if you do, uh, okay, you better get set up because. You can be. You can take a long time trying to dial in a joint where two boards come together flat by hand. That's its yeah. own thing, and it's great. And when I do it, and I do it successfully, I kind of do my dance around the shop, and I'm super happy about it. Um, <laughs> but honestly, you know, if I mark my X and O on the boards and hit them against the joiner, and even if the fence is off, as long as the you know the they're the right surfaces are out or against the fence and they come in together. Um, and I can trust that they're going to glue up, you know, flat, irregardless of how that angle is. Um, that's easier, but if I can't get there, then definitely the hand tools, you know, you have to go to this. So I think to your point, Ben, I would say that you don't have to hit every surface with a half plane, but you should hit every surface with a hand plane that you need to. So, a lot of machine work you have to follow up with hand work. So I don't think that, um, and I've said this, you can do every single thing in woodworking with only hand tools. You cannot do everything in woodworking with only machines. So even if you have sure. your machine work down, 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 you have to introduce hand tools at some point at some stage of the game to do the work to a certain level. Um, yeah. Fortunately, it's not absolutely everything. And the miters is or a good thing. If we can get that dead on off a table saw, awesome. If I can get my tenon dead on okay. at the table yeah. saw, I'm good. If I have to get it to fit, I'll do it. But yeah, um, let those machines do what they do. Um, and then do what you need to do with the hand tools after that. Yeah, I agree. I think the, you know, especially when you're talking about mortise and tenon, like if you're cutting the mortise with a machine and yeah. then cutting the tenon with a machine, yeah. then you can control how that fit happens very easily. Yeah. Um, if you're, however, if you're working hand tools only and you've cut that more, those mortises with a chisel right now, you can't depend on the consistency anymore. So now you want to oversize your tenon and thin it down and make each one fit individually because they are individuals. They're no longer the same. Yep. So uh, again, it's totally about how you work, um, you know, to, you know, whether you're using a, a machine um, technique or you're using a hand technique, but I mean, I mean, having every surface touched with a plane, I mean, that's nice and it's romantic and it makes you feel nice. But I think the reality is, is that it just doesn't, it, it's not necessary. I agree with Mike. If you get it off the joiner, if you get it off of the power joiner, yeah, then great. I mean, you can make the argument, I guess, that, um, you know, because it's a cylindrical cutter and it's going to leave ripples in the board, you know, how do you get two rippled surfaces to come together well? I mean, personally, I still will shoot it with a hand plane, but I have got myself to the point where I only allow one pass um, because as soon as you take subsequent passes on a joint, like on an edge like that, yeah. you are destroying everything the machine was going to give you, which was the accuracy and the squareness. Yeah. Um, I just, if I can get away with one pass in order to get all of those ripple marks off and then not touch it again, that's what I'm after. But I mean, otherwise I think that's probably just me being, um, you know, overcautious or worried about something that probably doesn't matter. But 
I'm sure we can start a forum thread on it. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's quickly hit question number four uh, from Andrew. I'm a hobbyist, still learning how to master hand tools. I have a block plane and number seven, and in between four number fours. I started with two number fours that I inherited, and somehow they've multiplied. <laughs> As they are wont to do. <laughs> You're not supposed to be next to each other. Um, <laughs> uh, all planes are, are sharp, flat, and rust-free. My question is, to expand the range of what I can do with my planes, should I grind and hone some of the number four blades to different angles, or should I keep my favorite number four and acquire a couple of other size planes? I have a joiner and a planer, so I don't really rely on hand tools exclusively, but I like to go to them when I can. That's interesting. So, a wealth of fours. Yeah, what are we doing with fours? Yeah, what are you doing with all those, Vic? All the fours. Well, I, I don't know. I think, um, I mean, I'd be tempted to set them all up differently. I mean, that's what I would do. If I uh, like, I would actually, I would sell them. I would keep the ones that I, you know what I mean, that I would need, yeah. and then go from there. But I mean, you could do things like. Um, now he says that he's got a jointer and a and a thickness planer. So, like my initial thought before I heard that was to convert one into a scrub. The old scrub plane. The yeah. old scrub plane. That's perfect use for an old Stanley. Is you yeah. know put that heavy camber on there and then use it as a scrubber. Yeah. And then yeah, you can do things like you could have one with a ten degree back bevel on it that you know is um, you know or you could put a replacement iron in one. Um, you know, like a like a hawk or a, or a Veritas replacement iron, and then what you end up doing is like you set that one up for your fine plane, yeah. and then leave the Stanley blade in another one, and that's more of a coarse plane. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I used to like have a, a whole like fleet of smoothers, and now I've really only got kind of two that I use all the time, like a small bevel up smoother and a and a and a. Well, no, that's not true. I got a couple of wooden ones, but the wooden ones are all sort of they're they're not because I need them. They're because I have a problem. I enjoy making tools. I enjoy making hand planes. They're a lot of fun to me. Um, so but yeah, I would yeah, set them up for different purposes. I mean, you you know, don't leave them all the same way. I mean, that way you can grab the one you yeah. want. I I I just had the thought, does anyone make a tooth plane? Iron for number fours. I've seen it like for the I've bevel seen up. For, yeah. you know, bevel ups and stuff. But yeah, typically you don't use a tooth plane and bevel down because the bevel down plane you can apply a pretty heavy camber and remove material. The whole point of the tooth okay. blade is to be able to take a heavier cut without kind of wrecking the wood or you know that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I suppose you could you could do with a. I don't even know if you could do it with a file. I don't think because that's pretty hard. Maybe. Yeah, it was just a thought. Yeah, if you wanted to, like, get into prepping veneer surfaces with a tooth. No, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Forget that. Just use modern adhesive and you'll be okay. (laughs) Patrick Edwards. Yeah, hey, listen, that's cool, man. I get it. Like, I mean, if you're using hide glue, then I totally, yeah, toothing of surfaces is legit. But, I mean, if I'm using... You know, like a cold press, like I typically use a type bond cold press for any veneer yeah. work. And I've never, ever had problems with it coming up or, 
anything like that. So especially if then you encase that piece in an epoxy pour, I find that (laughs) (laughs) that really makes sure it doesn't go anywhere, you know, Uh, and it seems to be the hot thing right now. So we could all, you know, and people, it seems like there are more and more inclusions being added to epoxy pours these days. And it just brings to mind this uh, toilet seat my grandma had back in the sixties. Oh, I want to know where this is going. (laughs) Oh man. And it was like clear, whatever, loose site, but embedded. There's beach sand, there's seashells, there's pennies in there. How cool I think there is might that? have been like a, a Las Vegas logo in there. So <laughs> I don't that, know. that should have been a given. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, which is not a bad thing, but it's just starting to get a little bit too close in reference the more stuff I see and stuff. But anyway. Um, All right. So, so besides your mother's. Your grandmother's toilet seat. What are you doing with a bunch of number fours? Um, I think I'm, I'm a lot like Vic. I'm probably going to set two up pretty close to identical to each other. I think the aftermarket blade, get a super tight throat, get that thing really, really sharp, make sure the sole is really flat, and that's my smoother. That's my final guy. Um, I would probably set a second one up pretty much the same because that's kind of how I set up my four and five. Those are my two go-to planes. And in essence, I kind of set them up the same, but you know, as you're getting rid of snipe and mill marks and stuff in wood, you'll take, you know, it'll take a few passes to get down to flat. And I find that if you use your smoothing plane for that, it kind of puts a lot of wear and tear on that. So the idea of getting two set up the same one, you're going to kind of use to kind of get everything down to basically flat. So it isn't like a heavy camber. You're not removing a lot of stock. You're just kind of truing up the machine marks from that board. And then you pull out your smoother and do one or two passes just to get the frosting on the cake. Um, Or so a lot of times I'll set up my four and five exactly the same way. And then as I start to use one more than the other, one becomes the smoothing plane, the other one becomes the roughing plane until they both become the roughing plane. And then I need to sharpen both again and kind of go back to scratch. So I think it's really good to have, it's a nice luxury to have two set up in the other two. Um, actually, and I'm not saying this, you know, sarcastically, but it's really good to have an MDF playing around something, you know, if you're truing up jigs and, and that kind of stuff, hand planes are a really good way to do it. And, um, you take amazing shavings on MDF with a hand plane, but it, Oh yeah. I've got a number four and I know what to <laughs> but do it, with it now. Yeah, your it is, good yeah. Plane. And it's yes. going to get beat up, but guess what? You don't need a razor sharp edge to take good shavings on MDF or plywood. And it's a good to have that little beater around for that kind of stuff. There you I go. I am so excited. Yeah, I agree with Mike. Like the, the smoothing plane to me is like, it's like a 150 year old random orbital sander, right? <laughs> so like I wouldn't use a random orbital sander to remove snipe marks because you'd end up with a disaster on your hands. Exactly. So right. I mean, if you set up your jack to do that sort of work and then like the the smoothers are your polishers. Those are like that's your it's like block planes too, right? It's good to have two block planes. Yes. It's good to have one that is set up to like shave the hair off a gnat's butt. Yep. But then also have one like like we're talking about, have the one that you use to uh, fare out templates yeah. or whatever made out of Baltic birch mm-hmm. or what have you. So, yeah. I mean, having a having a coarse tool and having a fine tool, I mean, that's a that's a good way to separate them out. Yeah. And if you got them, go for it. You know, like you, you know, to say, oh, go buy 
two Lee Nielsen number four bronze smoothers. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, it's tough. But, you know, um, if you have a Stanley and then you upgrade to a Veritas or Lee Nielsen, don't throw the Stanley away. You can get that set up for something else. I agree 100%. All right. Well, uh, we'll end with some listener comments. Uh, this one is from Xjumper65. This is a great woodworking podcast from the writers and editors of the finest woodworking magazine I've ever read. Right on, wow. The content is entertaining and informative. The hosts and occasional guest hosts are a pleasure to listen to. Tom, Ben, and Mike, along with the occasional ray of sunshine known as Anissa Capsalis. Yeah, but too much sun is not good. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and my favorite iTunes comment of all times, these five star reviews, which we all appreciate. This is my favorite from baby hippo, Dan. It's, <laughs> it's no cereal, <laughs> but great wood, great woodworking podcast though. So <laughs> no, all right. no cereal, but nobody gets hurt. So <laughs> going for us. <laughs> Anybody have any random recommendations, uh, Instagram accounts? Oh, Barbie. What is it? Barbie. Yeah, woodworking? that That's was all the mine. rage right now. Yeah. Cause she uses yeah. blue tape on her ducktails. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a copy of my book in her shop. So that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that's a, that's an astounding account. Yes, it is. Yeah. So basically it's kind of stop motion Barbie doll, or I guess it's not. They're just someone off camera is moving a Barbie doll around and she's making things out of wood and cutting some really nice dovetails. I'm blown away by the their ability to woodwork at such a fine scale because if you think about how small the yeah. pieces are to be scaled to a Barbie doll, it's insane. Yeah, it's it's a father daughter team who's putting that together. Yeah. It's super cool, really really cool. Yeah, I think I think it's a father daughter team with the joke that got a little out of hand or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, right on. I'll have to check that out. Anything else? No, I'm good. No, all right. And right at that very moment, my microphone started to freak out as I read the outro copy. So that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalkatalk.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. Thank you to our sponsors for keeping this train rolling. Thanks again to Jeff Rose for keeping this train rolling, really. And uh, we'll be back next week with a bonus episode.